0: So how are you doing? Let's start there. How, okay, I mean, you're always asking how we're doing. How are you doing? Well I'm How's doing, Apple?
1: I'm doing good. Oh, I mean, you know, what was really good was New York, like right now, which, which is where you live. So we got to hang out a bit. We, we got to like a very nice long evening of conversation and, um, we just happened to arrive when it was really, really beautiful out. So, um, yeah, it was the first like summer taste of summer that I've had so far. And, um, any anybody that's listening to this might have listened to the last episode, which the, the whole reason that we went there was to talk to the winners of Apple's Macro Challenge, and also Kai Drance, who that was her second time on the show. And I, I don't, I, I think it's, I think it's pretty cool to get these opportunities to, you know, get something kind of direct from the, like the people that are making big decisions at Apple that are, um, you know. Kyan's the one that's on stage every time announcing the iPhone. So meeting her in person is kind of wild. Like, I, I don't know. It's like, it's like the most specific celebrity culture of like, you're in the keynote, which, you know, that's, that's exciting for me. So I don't know. Did you, did you get a chance to, to catch the interview?
0: I did. Yes. I thought it was really cool uh, that you got to spend time with uh, some of the the winners of the macro contest. Uh, I'm always interested to know like where people come from and kind of what like, sort of what, what their backgrounds are, where they get started, like what sort of drives them or inspires them to make the images that they make. So I just, um, I gotta yeah, say that, that if, really cool. if
1: I had won a, a contest like that early on in my career, which not all of them are, some of them are professionals, but most of them are hobbyists. It would just like completely blow my mind. Like, it, th- th- Like that is such a validation for you know creative work that may just feel like a hobby but all of a sudden you go one to a hundred and now they're going to be in apple billboards like it's pretty cool yeah and to piggyback on that i would say that like i think
0: for me like those like any kind of photography contest is like one of the the few like real vulnerability points for me like i feel so insecure at the thought of do you enter them
1: no no I
0: don't yeah I don't I don't enter them I've I've never
1: entered a photography contest
0: I, I think like when I first started maybe for like a year and a half I did and then um but I was really green then and I think like the greener you are sometimes like the more invincible you feel about your work um but then you know as time went on and even when I stopped uh entering contests, but like they would come across my feed or whatever. And I would see in the aggregates, like, like some of the work from winners of different categories and stuff. I'm just like, wow, these people out here are so good. (laughs) Like they're so good. So I'm at a point now where, I mean, I'm happy with my work, if that makes sense. But if someone is like, you should, you should enter this contest. I'm like, "Ah, it
1: it might be the (laughs) same reason I don't play multiplayer video games because I don't need to get my ass handed to me by a 10 year old, you know, like somebody that, that I feel like, look, I've been playing video games all my life. I should be the best at Tony Hawk, but I'm I'm not, and it's humbling <laughs> when when people that just picked it up a year ago are, are way, way better than me. And that happens with photography all the time. Like, there's some insanely talented young people, so it's true. But um, since I am a bad podcast host, I, I always uh, poorly introduce my guest. And if anybody hasn't heard the previous episodes of Ch- Simbrush, I mean, I feel like I have some new – you're a super humble guy, so you won't hype yourself as much as I want to hype you because, I don't know, you're, you're one of my favorite photographers – but you're doing you're doing some like bigger new work that is visible to a wider audience now that I think I think is really cool. I love seeing your name out there in uh I mean you're doing a lot of New York Times photos, photography right now. Um you're doing GQ. Um what what else have you been shooting? How I mean, I don't know. I, I, I know you don't want to hype yourself up, but I love I love seeing you in big publications. It's so cool. I appreciate that, but I I mean See, I told you, you're going to, you're you're trying to downsell it. You're like, no, 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 no. I
0: I promise. I promise. I'm not trying to downplay anything like this is, this is absolutely not a lie. And you should know this from like our private conversations, Mm -hmm. but like Mm -hmm. nothing gets me going more than like just going out on the street when I don't have like commissions and I can just like kind of just discover the world and discover people and find sort of like interactions and things like that. I know a lot of uh, photographers who do like street photography in particular, um, they always talk about like trying to find that moment, you know? And for me, especially living in a place like New York, like there's just never going to not be moments. Like every time you you turn a corner in New York City, like there's a moment. So I don't really have to find moments because they're always going to come. What I love are the instances where – like I spot someone and I can approach them and we can have like a bit of an interaction. And if things go well, maybe I walk away like with a portrait of that person. And I tell you, like when I put my portraits on, on let's say Instagram, but especially like in Instagram stories, I don't like normally tag. Cause I, I, I photograph like so many people on the streets. So I don't necessarily like tag. It's just too many photos to go through. But inevitably, the photos, like the portraits always find their way, like back to the, the person that I took the photo of. And when they find it, like I try to do right by them and like actually like send them the photo. I'm like, here you go. But um, to me, like, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for like the actual yeah. interactions because the moments are going to happen.
1: Yeah. And, no, that feeling's great. Uh,
0: that excites me more than the, the jobs. I love the money, but it, it excites me more than the jobs.
1: Uh, I had a cool one on our Hawaii trip. We were taking drone shots of surfers. So they're like out there, like far. And I'm just sending the drone out as far as I could. And I was kind of trying to get as close as I could and kind of get portraits of people waiting around. And I got one of two guys just sitting on their boards and posted it as an Instagram post. Didn't tag anything really. Like, obviously, I don't know who they are. It was a drone shot way out there. And he messaged me within hours. Like, he just found the photo. It's like, Hey, I love that. Like, can you send me the photo? That was so cool. Do you want to meet up and we'll like shoot something else? And then we, yeah, we saw them on the beach the next day and it was just like, I don't know. That stuff is really fun. Like I, I really like it. And I, I, you know, I think especially cause not everybody gets photos taken by somebody as talented as you every day. So it's like, it's a pretty cool thing to have. Like it's a cool record for them. I, I would imagine, but um,
0: I mean, I, honestly like the pleasure is always on the side of the table. Like just like the fact that people like trust me, they don't, they don't know me. Yeah, yeah <laughs> of course. I mean the fact that they trust
1: me and they give me like a little it, bit of their time, like it's invaluable, you know, usually when somebody will walk up to them and say like, Hey, can I take your photo? It's not going to turn out, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, the, the, um, this isn't a great example. But there's there's a trend on like TikTok and everything of uh, people walking up with their phone they're like I, I saw I saw a ballet dancer and I showed her my portfolio and this is what I created. You must have come across this t- trend, no? I don't do TikTok. Okay, so that, I mean, just I I I, I, don't just know.
0: Like, I I watch TikTok but I don't yeah.
1: They'll just show a random person their Instagram account and say, like, can I shoot photos of you? Right. Which is, I mean, it's not mm-hmm. that different from what you're doing, but then they turn it into like, that's the meme is that they show a video of meeting the person. And it's about like, I blew their mind with my photography. And there's just something sort of, I don't know, that I, I don't love about that trend. Like, it feels, feels weird to me. I, I, it like, it feels like this sort of like. Power imbalance or something. It's like, look, I can make you look cool, and then I gifted this person, and it's the same as like posting videos of handing out money to, to to homeless people or something. I'm like, it becomes this weird like transactional thing that I'm not super comfortable with. I got you. Um, yeah, that's I, so different from just like just doing the work, right? I mean, it, it, that's kind of what I'm saying in contrast to what you do. And again, people are not picturing your photos if they haven't followed you before. So Google. Simbarash GQ or Simbarash New York times. And you'll, you'll see his street style work. But, um, in, in other news, we also both uh, have new microphones today. That's another thing that's changed since last time we did it. And how, how do you like yours? You've got your on. what did you get? Uh, it's the sure. I think this the MV. I think it's like the MV seven.
0: Is this MV seven? Yeah, yeah, is there it, you go.
1: Sure. MV. 7 I can see it. I can see it in yeah, my little stream thing. MV7. Here. Yeah. And, uh, okay. I'm going through the deity VO seven U, um, which I've kind of, any I mean, especially anybody that's watching this, I'm taking a bit of a different approach now where I think I'm going to do just webcam and like this is a USB mic. I'm going to try to simplify the production of the podcast so I can do it more, basically. Because like any guest that comes on, if they have to set up their own webcam and like lights and stuff, it's like, it's a lot more work. So I'm trying to make it easier on you. But um, also I just, in terms of microphones, I, I do think this is interesting too, because these are both like really easy mics to use. Like it took a while for there to be a good selection of what I consider to be good USB podcast mics. Cause most of them would be condenser mics where the audio sounds great in a studio or in a treated room. And we're both in, you know, like, like apartment studio apartment kind of situations. And I'd much prefer dynamic microphone. Both of these are dynamic. Um, so anyway, I mean, I'm going to be, I'm going to be curious to kind of like hear them side by side and hear the difference of how they sound like. I have, a. Um...
0: An AKG, uh, I think it's a C three thousand B mic, which is uh, I wouldn't call it like a legendary mic by any means, um, but it's a very very good mic from about you know fifteen years back. And ever since I moved to New York, I cannot use that mic in an apartment because of um, is,
1: is it condenser? Is that the whole thing?
0: It's a condenser, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a condenser and it's it's a like a true room mic, and um, it. I mean, I'll pick up stuff from down the street that I can't even hear, like with my ears.
1: It's so good. I totally understand that feeling of like the better the mic is, the the harder it is to use in a lot of situations. So anyway, that's why I was really happy to see this selection, um, you know, from deity doing this kind of, um, they hadn't done a podcast mic before. So they went for this, like, it's pretty affordable. Do you remember how much yours was? Cause I think they're both like comparable mm-hmm. prices. They're probably comparable prices. I don't remember what I paid, even though I got it like a month ago. So yeah, I mean, I'm f- instantly forgetting too. So yeah, this is one seventy US, and I think they're both around that like two hundred ish range. Um, yeah, and you're getting non like you're not really compromising the quality. It's not as good as like so yours, right? The it, you'd compare it to the Sure SM7B, which is what I had the pleasure of using on the last episode for the macro interviews. And those mics are fantastic just like fantastic microphone. I just, I, I've resisted buying one because they're so default. They're like, it's, are you watching a podcast? That's probably the mic you're going to see. And I kind of don't mm-hmm. like that. You know, I like having something unique but using it. I understand why it's default. It just, it sounds so good with everybody built in shock mount built in pop screen. It's got it all it's the whole package.
0: Yeah, but it also, I think in one of the things that we were talking about offline is that, I mean, that might cost more, but also you've got the added investment of the other components that you have to, to get with it just to get it to work uh, the way that it's intended. So, 100%. I mean, yeah, the mics that we have, really cool. we just plug them in and they're ready to go. So, I mean, you look at the sticker price of like the other one, the other Sure, and it might be $100, $150 more, but then when you've got to get, all of the other hardware, if you don't have it already, like you might be running yourself an extra several hundred dollars on top of that price. So,
1: yeah, for sure. You got to know what you're doing, but uh, I mean, that's kind of what's, what's new in in podcast news. Um, I think what's much more interesting though, is to talk about the stuff we like have been, have been talking about a lot. Yeah. So (laughs) I, I don't know. I didn't like set an agenda for this. I just know because we had a good conversation the other day. Well, and we do all the time. Like, I I, I mean, I love talking to people that I, I genuinely feel are better than me or doing, or also doing things in a really different way. Like I know, I do know your, your approach to, to when you shoot is, is totally different from mine, even though like we, I think we share the same, uh, like a lot of the same tastes. Like we both like the same things, but you're getting there in such a different way. Um, so without spending the whole episode talking about JPEGs, how do you, how how do you like, (laughs) how do you summarize and describe kind of the, the, the way you approach tech technically J- what about jpegs or no, just about can't, my can't approach to your approach to photography right now
0: oh okay uh so so my approach uh in the beginning was always trying to find um a place within my technical my technical approach specifically where i could get consistent results every time no matter what the conditions or the shooting situations were And I think that, you know, as a professional, like, that's a place where a lot of us, like, would like to be. A lot of us try to aspire to be. Um, But when you find yourself, and I know, like, for you in particular, you shoot commercial stuff that, while it's probably usually in, like, a good range of light spatial situation, like, you're not always in control of all of the elements or the amount of time that you might have to shoot something, Um, or maybe with the tools that you have available, like the client wants it to look like something else entirely. (laughs) Um, so getting to that place of, of consistency was my, my main pursuit for a long time. And I think that since maybe 2018, 2019, um, when I felt like technically I'd sort of reached that level, um, I started looking at. Ways to simplify um, that approach to make just the working end of it easier. And I know that we spend like a lot of time talking about like ways to better our like edit flow and our workflow when it comes to like doing video and stuff like that. But like post production, I meant I stumbled on something that was kind of interesting when I really started investing a lot heavier in um, like really good phot- photography books especially from, like, some of my favorite photographers. Um, they all have some this one thing in common, which is, like, none of them had a complicated work process. None of them had a complicated film process, if we're talking about analog shooters from, like, decades ago. Like, the approach is always super simple. What makes, the like, the images so interesting, to me at least, is the fact that they just let their perspective do the talking. And when I started coming to that realization then I started worrying less and less about the technical aspect of the work. And by, by technical, I mean like I started worrying less and less about which lens is the sharpest, which camera is the fastest, uh, which which editing technique is going to get me like that, that green or that yellow that's going to like turn just the way that I need it. I'm like, you know what? If the perspective is good and the vision is good, a lot of this other stuff is extraneous, and it doesn't quite matter as much as we think it does.
1: Well, something that's interesting about it is that I think a lot of people that are looking for that optimization are doing it because their, their whole thing is that they need fast turnaround. Maybe they're either because they're like in sort of a news environment, or they're doing social media where it's you know direct to post kind of thing. Like you got to be done, you're doing it all on your phone and finishing it on your phone. But that's not Your environment, you are often you know you have some time to deliver. I know when you're doing Fashion Week and stuff, that's going to be a faster turnaround. But like, you're not you're not rushing it, right? You you are trying to get a produced, well, you're achieving a produced final look that looks like it's had all the care and attention. Um, But yeah, I just think it's interesting that you like were seeking those optimizations without it being an external pressure of. The job, right? Like when I need to do something fast, it's because like, well, I got to just post this quickly. So that's why I'm doing it. Um, But you're kind of doing it. I I mean, it sounds like that you're doing it because you find, I I don't know, maybe it gives you more time to put attention towards the subject, lets you be more present. I don't know. I don't want to, you know, put words in your mouth, but like taking away some extraneous stuff so that you can do the work in a way that you find to be better that's uh that that's part of it that's part of it and since you mentioned fashion week um
0: the other part of it which is actually really critical for me is that when i decided i didn't really decide but at some point just through the nature of the process that i took in creating my images at fashion week i became prolific in a way that um i mean we're all prolific at fashion week let me just start there like we're shooting hundreds of people a day, creating hundreds to thousands of images a day. And most photographers who are my colleagues might spend all night, you know, editing photos for clients and things like that. That's what I do. Yeah. and, And like, you know, on the face of it, like my process isn't entirely different from that. Where my process is a bit different though, is that I will put up a sequence of 100 images, you know, every single day. And so to do that, and then to edit, and like try to tweak out like the nth degree of like perfection from each image, and then have to call them in such a way that I want to put them in a sequence to where they make sense to where images work well together to where to where the experience and the history of the day is being told in both an accurate, but also like uh, an interesting way means that I have to spend more time with the storytelling aspect of putting that work together than I do the actual tweaking of
1: minuscule details. Well, here, I'll try to get through two questions quickly. One is so that, that most of that optimization, like that posting you're doing is to your Instagram stories and anywhere else, like, because you, you know, the stuff you submit to your editor, they're making those choices for you. So that storytelling piece that you're talking about right now, does it only really arrive in either a gallery on Instagram or your stories? In a way. Yeah. Um, cause so, so cause I mean, it yeah, it's like, question, yeah. You, you know, it's like you're putting all this work cause like, yeah, I watch your stories as you're, as you're doing this coverage and it's like, so complete, right? Like it's a full, it's full coverage of these events. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You should have a newsletter. Uh, maybe that's what. Maybe it's not a question. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, no, it, it, it's 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 it's. I wouldn't
0: I wouldn't necessarily call this a problem, but it's this is more an issue of the fact that we work in an industry that's just like it's a Titanic and we're like speedboats. You know what I mean? Like right. we, as individual creators, can evolve and change and and manipulate. And, and take chances in in our work, you know, from day to day, from job to job. Whereas clients are like the Titanic. They're big tankers, big cruise ships that they have to see things way, way, way out in advance to even start to think to pivot. So in terms of like when I shoot for a client, um, like that kind of work specifically, like I already know that there's a very structured and traditional way that they can show the work. You know, they might not even have a design infrastructure to, to display the work the way that it's meant to be displayed.
1: Do you, do you have a window Um, into how it performs afterwards? Like as you, when you, I mean, I guess I don't want to name which one you're talking about because you probably can't give specific examples, but like, do you have a sense of the, the, the viewership afterwards? I mean, or like, do you, do you hear any feedback after it's published? Or is it just like they take it and now it's, it's in their world and you look at the web page like the rest of us do? Are you talking about from the client? The client? Yeah. End? Yeah. Yeah. And this is specifically in like New York Times, GQ, like your fashion week coverage type stuff. Obviously you do commercials sometimes in, in video. But when you're doing coverage that's happening kind of like live and it's being published in a traditional publication.
0: Sometimes. I mean, they never share like analytics or anything with me. You know, mm-hmm. um, if something performs especially well, um, sometimes I'll hear about it. Um, get a high five. <laughs> yeah, but, but I would say that when, but when I'm posting the work, like on my own channel, um, when I, when I see sort of like this, the spike in viewership of, you know, people coming to like my Instagram stories, especially, um, maybe the amount of DMs that I get. Uh, that gives me a pretty good in- indication for like how things are, are are sort of being received. But to be honest, because the client is usually going to present my work the same way that they present like traditional street style work, mm-hmm. every publication is presenting that stuff, right? So it's kind of like a needle in a haystack. And if they're going to show it the way everyone else shows it, yeah. unless you know, they are already dealing with their own readership. I I don't I wouldn't
1: know why there would be a spike in that kind of audience. This episode is brought to you by Microsoft Lists. You guys know I'm disorganized. That's why this podcast doesn't come out every week. Maybe if I kept more lists, I could be on a better schedule. Are you looking for a new way to track and manage work and life from start to finish? Microsoft Lists is here to help you clear your brain and get organized. And it all starts at lists.live. Com. Microsoft kicked off a preview program to try lists with your Microsoft account. So it's all designed for small businesses and individual use. You can start by creating and sharing your lists with your work colleagues, partners, soccer team, or your neighbors. You might create a list of books or movies for your monthly meetings. You could track home improvement and important receipts throughout the year, which is actually something that's been very important to us lately. And at lists.live.com, you can get started quickly with your ready-made templates you can use filters and views to visualize your information which means you can have one list with many different views and then you can share your lists as links and I'm sure you can already think of a ton of ways to create lists but some ideas if they're not coming to mind or you could do event itineraries or you could have an issue tracker on a project that you're working on or receipt collection which like, like I was saying we're doing a big renovation and there is a lot of stuff to manage all the time I'm constantly having to keep track of a lot of individual items for that so Microsoft Microsoft lists is perfect for making sure that i don't lose track of any of those specific things so go ahead and try that preview right now at no cost go to your browser and type in lists.live.com that's lists.live.com sign up sign in and track what matters most check it out and let microsoft know what you like and if you have any future requests and thanks again to microsoft for supporting the show well to the to the second part of my quick question so everybody here cares about the gear so let's also talk about like you know not just philosophically how you're approaching it but practically what does it mean you've ended up doing like what are you shooting on most of the time lately how do you set it up in in a way that's kind of atypical
0: i shoot both digitally and analog Mm -hmm. on the digital side um all my cameras are are fujis i have a medium format gfx i have an xt4 an x100 um and XT three. Yeah, XT three. So I've got four Fuji digital cameras. Um I couldn't tell you how many lenses I have. I have I'm pretty sure all the primes. Uh all the primes and the kit, both the kit six like eighteen to fifty five and then the sixteen to fifty five. So the sixteen to fifty five, which is like kind of like the higher end one, I use for commission client work especially if it's things that I need to shoot indoors um, outside if I have to use a zoom I prefer the kit lens because I don't know it it's not as clean it's actually not as clinical and I, I like that on the analog side I have uh, right now every week I'll maybe change a camera but right now I'm
1: shooting with a, a Rolliflex uh TLR I have I a Minolta presenting. TLR it's incredibly beautiful. The Rolleiflex. I mean, because a lot of the time when I see them, they're pretty worn. I mean, it is an old, I don't know what year it is, but it's an old camera and it does not look like an old camera. Mm-hmm. It looks like it was just made yesterday. <laughs> it's pretty close to mint. Yeah. yeah. I,
0: I, when I've shoot, when I'm shopping for uh, old cameras, uh, on eBay, I will identify the camera that I want. And sometimes it'll take me a few months to find the copy that I'm after because I'm I'm very I scrutinize like every little detail of all the images the descriptions I ask questions yeah want the best copy I can find That's good for sure
1: Well and yeah. uh, that was, an, uh, was another thing we had overlap with this time was um I was shooting film for the first time in 4 years Yeah welcome to years? the family Yeah it was like <laughs> I really I took a big break off of it when I was doing the cameras or whatever podcast that was a a lot of the first episodes were all about film. Like we talked about film a lot and I dropped off because my lab closed, like my, just where I was sending it. And the last roll of film I had just sat in the camera until very recently. I just sent it in because it was just kind of this, like my, my workflow got disrupted and I don't make any money off of the film stuff. And it just felt like, I I had this feeling of, um, you know, I'm spending extra money and extra time and it is a, a bunch of extra energy goes into that film stuff. Is it making my work and is it making my work better? Is it making me happier? What, what's the payoff for everything I'm investing Mm -hmm. in it? And so, yeah, I just totally dropped it. And a lot of that was just that it was becoming more difficult to get good scans. Scans are the issue. Like there's plenty of labs that won't screw up your film. Like that it'll come out fine. There's not as many labs that know how to scan well and and give you good final digitals, and they're going to charge a reasonable price for it, Uh, unless you live in New York, and then you can just walk into (laughs) a place down the block, and they're all good. But
0: um. there there are good there are good labs all over the world, man. There are good labs all over the world. Yeah, but I have to mail
1: mine in. That's that's it was. I mean, that was a really nice difference. You might have to mail it in. It was literally ten minutes from my hotel. Uh, I went to the Color House and Mm -hmm. they were great i mean i had them by the end of the day it was a good price great service i loved it so i mean yeah it just made me realize if i lived where you did do i'd be shooting film even more often but um it was a yeah shooting on that little disposable the yashica mf1 that is like a reusable disposable I was I was just thinking of picking up disposable while I was there and then when we went into Adorama Anya spotted those and was like let's get every color because they're these super bright fun colors and half of that's just for props I mean they're gonna be great to be in the background of YouTube videos but um I don't know how did you feel about the role that came out I was a little disappointed I felt I I I underexposed a lot of them um I think because a lot of it's that like the lenses f11 and the film was four, I saw 400, which I was I knew it. I checked all this, but I was imagining in my head that it was 800 because that's what a disposable should be to me. Um, I don't know. I was like I was just head metering a little higher and uh, so it came out a bit dark, but I don't know what did you think?
0: I, I, first of all, I loved your your photos. I think that your expectation <laughs> of quality benchmark for that kind of camera, was in the wrong place. I think that was the problem. There's nothing wrong with the photos. I just I needed more
1: du- direct sunlight. I, I think I trusted the flash yes, maybe. I trusted the flash too much. I was like, yeah, I, I the flash mm-hmm. is on, it's going to be fine. It's that flash is like n- nothing at all. But no.
0: No, but that's also kind of the charm of that kind of camera, right? Like we're talking film just in a tr- like in a, a logical sense. If if you're shooting with a disposable Film camera, you should not be expecting professional grade results, right?
1: No. I I, I guess I'm, <laughs> but there's, there's things that I really love about the disposable image quality. Um uh, which I, I saw mm-hmm. a great video actually on YouTube afterwards. Um just comparing like a good point and shoot to disposable. And I mean when you see them next to each other, just the, the sharpness of what is in focus. Let's say it's a landscape at focused to infinity, disposables are so fuzzy and i i kind of do appreciate that i do like it like it's it's a type of crappiness that is very appealing like i i i i I was happy about that part of how it came out because sometimes when you get it when you get film back and you I, i i am disappointed when i'm like this could be digital right like where i'm like i couldn't spot that this is this is like what it would look like if i just threw a quick filter on it whereas like Mm. there's something about Mm -hmm. the way that film falls apart. That is what I find more appealing. Like I've, 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 I've often thought that there's, there's times that I'll see a digital image and I'll wonder if it's film. I'll be like, that could be, I'm not really sure if it is or not, but there's never a time that I see an image that is film. And I'm like, I know that's film. And then I'm wrong. Like usually if I'm confident, it probably is but there, but there is stuff that's like in the middle where it's like, it kind of could go either way. Um, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. But.
0: Yeah. I think probably people would probably say my work is a lot like that. Is that film? Right. Is that digital? Yeah. I, I mean,
1: yeah. the, like the the one twenty when you're shooting on a larger format, I mean, it's so clean that it's mm-hmm. less and it's well exposed. <laughs> um, it becomes less obvious, you know, it kind of falls into that gray area.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, the the part about the film falling apart, especially on um disposable, you know, that's that has a lot to do with the actual film. I mean, it's both the film and the lens, because when we talk about something like I get really nerdy for a second, when we talk about, you know, uh lens sharpness, like on a prime lens, especially like fast lens, like one of the things that uh these lenses are renowned for are are the glass how the glass is coated, how the glass is coated will affect things like um, aberrations and sun flare, light, light flares and things like that. Whereas on a digital, on a, not a digital, sorry, a disposable camera, you know, the lens is probably plastic. Um, The film is almost definitely a consumer grade film. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, I could be wrong about this, but I want to say that even on a lot of old school like a if you get like a Kodak disposable, it's probably running 200 ISO film. It's not even 400 in most cases, um, which is why I'm a little. I think it's a little interesting that you were underwhelmed by the flash on your Yashica, but it might just be because it it's built a little different because it's a reusable disposable. But usually those pop flashes
1: are pretty good. I mean, not well, good, but they're powerful enough. I also had a like a dark area. It didn't fill the frame. Like there's a bunch of photos where I was like. two or three feet away one meter away the distance i kind of should be and the left half of the frame would just fall off into darkness and i was like that's kind of weird so but i got a few i'm just supposed to make the images fun you know yeah yeah, sure i mean it is fun no i totally i i I totally do enjoy it i think i what if i were to do it again because i had a few comments like any tips Mm -hmm. on shooting disposables and i hadn't done it for so long that i'd forgotten all my own tips so now i (laughs) remember remember what i should be doing um, yeah, basically just keep the flash on all the time because you're usually probably yes. underexposed. Um, as often as possible, shoot just full-on direct sunlight. You know, if it's backlit, that that can be fine. Keep the flash on or expect a, a bit of a silhouette. Uh, but if you're in the shade, flash on and get closer than you think. Because I I was yes. thinking about that. I'm like, yeah, the flash is on, but I have a bunch of shots that I was maybe like three, or, three meters away, four meters away because there's that photo we took of us in the restaurant it's super dark and that was probably 3 meters i don't you know like it was it was about twice as far as it should have been and we basically just should have taken it from a lot closer cause that light's going to fall off quickly. So, you know, be pretty close to your subject and the flash probably will do what it's supposed to.
0: Was I on the left side of that frame or were you, I don't remember. Uh, I was, I mean, we couldn't see anything. I was on the,
1: I was on I'm a the, dark
0: person and we were in a dark place. So yeah,
1: maybe I was on the left side. You were on the, you were on the brighter side. Actually, you were better exposed. Okay, yeah, the was light like, was, yeah. the light was falling off on me. Um, it was incredibly dark, but, uh, but yeah, I still like the way that turned out. And I can't wait to see. I mean, you took one. So I'm still like uh, h- hoping to see whatever. Yeah, that done, which film. is probably better exposed. I haven't gotten that one uh, developed yet. I'll probably shoot one more roll and then get it developed this week. So we'll see. We'll see
0: in a few nice. days.
1: And then my next roll. So I'm going to bring another roll on this trip to Vegas coming up. And uh, so I put, I put a roll of old Porsche 400. It's been in the fridge the whole time. So hopefully it's alive. And I put it in a Yashica T4, so a much more legit camera, like a pr- a proper point and shoot, 3.5 lens, autofocus. Um, so you know, I I don't know. I I used to because I used to have a Contax T2 that I shot all the time, and I regret getting rid of it because it's like it's a really good point and shoot. And I was going through those old photos, I was like, wow, these all turned everything turned out awesome. So. Um, having a half, de- it doesn't have to be, the- those ones are relatively expensive. There's a lot of cheap point and shoots out there that you can pick up that are going to do basically the same job. So don't feel like you need to overspend on it. Um, but it, I don't know. It's super fun. So I'm excited to do that. Do you, what, what's your like go-to film? What do you load most of the time?
0: Uh, most of the time I want to say I shoot portrait 800 because the colors are just a little bit different. I mean, it, the colors on a portrait 800 is essentially a Portra 400 one-stop underexposed. So the colors that you get, like if you underexpose Portra 400 by a stop, you're basically going to get shooting Portra 800 at box speed. Um, it's not exactly the same, but it's pretty similar. Um, but I have a lot of Portra 400 in my fridge because right before covid i had shot a bunch of commercial jobs and had a bunch of film overage and usually for commercial some commercial stuff i'll get 400 and 800 just to be safe um but i never use the 400 so it's always almost all overage and i'm just trying to burn through it while it's still good i mean it's going to be good for a long time but
1: yeah how long do you think i'm trying to remember when i bought the stuff in my fridge so (laughs) i think like so the thing about seven years is how long i might have had that
0: the thing about uh portra 400 in particular is it's probably the most tolerant um color c41 film um if you take good care of it it'll probably last you well longer than 7 years um because remember again with with 400 because there's so much tolerance in it, it has so much uh latitude meaning that uh you can overexpose it a lot you can under underexpose it um once it starts to degrade a bit. You sort of have to start overexposing it to kind of bring it back up to speed. Um, but yeah, Portrait 400 will last a long time as long do as you, you take care of it.
1: Do you worry about, four, what do you do with 400 when you're traveling? Like Or, and 800 too. Like, do you hand it to them to hand inspect as you go through the x-rays? Do you let it go through the machine? What do you do?
0: Yeah, so in, a, in, in the States, uh, usually most TSA, most TSA around America is like really good. Um, so you can put in a baggie or just hand it to them if you don't have a lot of film and they're happy to, to hand check it, uh, no matter what the film is. When you go abroad, it gets really tricky, really fast. And most of their like uh, TSA equivalent scanners are like ours. So if I fly to Heathrow, if I go to Morocco, if I go to Spain, whatever, um, none of these airports will ever hand-check my film, ever. They always <laughs> push it right through the scanner. Right. Um, so I'm I'm less worried about it these days. Portrait 400, I don't worry about at all. Portrait 800, I will, when I'm traveling abroad, I will first plot the number of airport connections I have to make because usually when you're traveling uh, internationally, even if you connect, you still have to go through like another – set of uh, security. If you're going to uh, an Arab-speaking country, they might have three levels of security before you get to the terminal, right? So that might be three scans from the parking lot to your gate. Um, The most I've had 800 scanned was six times internationally, and it was fine.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: I have also had...
1: It gives me some confidence.
0: The old... Yeah, I've also had the old Eterna, Fuji. They don't make that anymore. It was 1600 ISO film. I've had that scanned or x-rayed, um, and that was fine. I'm, I've am i never had fogging through the, the TSA scan, uh, x-ray machines. I would never put it in check bags. That's a absolute no-no. Because it's a much bigger
1: machine. More, it pen- will more penetrating. It fog your film right out. All right. Well, I, I don't yes, do that, yes, but good to yes. know perfect tip. Yeah.
0: Well, let's, um, almost all portraits. Portraits pretty robust. You should be fine. No
1: worries. Well, I'm very, um, yeah, I'm excited to get back into this. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll report back after I take some good photos and I can't wait to see your next role. Um, I'd love to talk about some digital some more. Cause that's a little bit more of the real world. Like how we, we talk, we talk For offline, <laughs> we talk offline all the time. How Now that we're like yeah. voice talking instead of just uh, sending messages, how can we make some progress of like teaching each other something new today where we can like walk away and be a little, a little better at what we, at what we do? Maybe, maybe a bit of a starting point if you, I shouldn't presume that you listened to previous episodes, but did you happen to catch the one with Cam McKay where we were talking about color a bunch? Love that podcast. Yes. What did, did. we miss? What did we not talk about? Now you're like going through my trying to remember everything we talked about, but did you have any like y- reaction so, to it? Yeah, I have just one
0: kind of, it's more of a philosophical thought um, than anything, which is we're getting into like these habits where we name things, we have terms for things that aren't really the thing anymore. Yeah, my phone. (laughs) So, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things that like I hear a lot, and I think you guys talked about on the episode was like filmic color. Does that sound wrong? It sounds like... Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. I feel like every professional or hobbyist photographer who does color on their images or their videos are, quote-unquote, trying to get filmic color. So if everyone's, like, after the same thing, but there are an infinite number of ways to do it wrong, firstly, a few number of ways to do it right, and there's no real way for everyone to kind of, like, swim... In the same way, which I think is one of the beautiful things about art, I, I like that that the fact that we have so many different avenues of reaching things. Why do we keep calling it filmic color? I, f- I feel like filmic color
1: is film, well, and
0: anything else is.
1: I have one good reason, and it's just mm. that I don't think we have a better word. That's it. It's not because it's moving towards replicating film more and more, but we're lacking in vocabulary that captures the meaning that we're trying to express there. Cause I think as shorthand, when I just say filmic, Mm -hmm. we all kind of picture something which can be very different. Like you're saying, I mean, it can look completely different from person to person. Like even if you talk about movies that are shot on film, you know, uh, they will look radically different or, or, or movies that have a very filmic look. They're not going to look the same. They're going to like, it, you know, it's, there's still a lot of choices to be made and it can end up in very different places, but we still kind of know what we mean. And I think all that it really means to me is the difference between like you, if I say it's got a digital look, you, you probably know what that means, right? Like it'll, to me, I, some hallmarks of it might be that I'd say like the skies, the blues in the sky will be tending to be a little more magenta might have a few more clipped highlights. Um, now you might have more HDR processing, like some more kind of compressed overall tone, like more tone mapping going on in general, um, on, on older stuff, you know, you're going to see uh, like, if this is on like a handy cam, you're going to see a certain kind of noise. Uh, that's very different from grain. Um, skin tones will be what, uh, less saturated, maybe like if it's not done as well, like it'll be less, um, like less density in, in, in skin tones where they sort of like feel thinner. Um, I don't know, like I'm trying to, I'm using uh, you know, wine tasting words to, <laughs> to describe it. But like, I think if we start picturing... if you're not watching this
0: on say YouTube, I'm, I'm side facing, but continue, please.
1: <laughs> but no, I mean, that, that, that's the end of it. I'm just saying it's like, if, if I say like, oh, it has like a, a, a digital look, like it looks clearly digital. You could probably be like, Oh, I, I understand what you're saying.
0: So the thing that you just explained,
1: mm-hmm. you're not wrong.
0: The thing that you just explained, you can reach all of those conclusions on film. Right. Like I don't know how many how many different stocks of of, of color film there is now, but they're all different and they all render they all render uh, skin tones completely different. Of course. Yeah. Depending on how you expose it will give you more or less density in that negative more or less information within the density will change the density of the appearance of that that skin tone right it's not unlike those sort of results that we're reaching in in digital which hence is is my original question like but we treat it as if these things are mutually exclusive or but like what, what's inclu-
1: inclusive <laughs> what's your shorthand word then for you know if i throw on the technical transform let the canon provides onto c70 footage it's going to look different mm-hmm. than if i process it with a, f- a filmic look in mind you know the finishing luts that you or i use do not look the same <laughs> as canon's technical transform LUT that feel that i would describe sure. as looking digital and there's something. There's a reason that those both make sense to us, even if the words are maybe poor choices of words. I think we both get it. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: so I'm going to answer your question. I'm just going to say real quick that I think maybe for this this type of discussion, it's probably. Never I meant it actually so. for photo, not. Sure. No, I meant no. I meant it for photo, <laughs> not not video. But because we're it, but for video, I think I don't I don't look at it quite that way. I, but I do think that there is a correct. It, there's a correct way in saying that there is a commercial look and a cinematic look. Yes. Like those things are very different and you can look at like the, the waveforms, the technical patterns, and you can see, you can, you can actually see where those differences are. I think though, when we're talking about color, I don't think there's any such thing as a filmic color. If it's digital, it can't be filmic. I guess filmic is like ish, right? It's like film. ish.
1: Yeah. Just use that word instead. (laughs) That's what I'm kind of but, saying, though, is you, you said, can I'm open to you can propose a new word if you've got one. I'm just sort of saying I don't think there's one that most people would understand. And also, <laughs> I'd say that I'm not really hung up. I'm not really hung up on figuring out like what the word is. I think what's more interesting is mm-hmm. like it's sort of discovering what these attributes are that we're all like. What are the things that we can be doing to our images that will get them closer to sources that we see that we appreciate? You know, and I think especially as you're starting out you see an image and you're like that look that's the thing that's how i want my image to look and it takes you like 20 years to figure out the ingredients that are that are involved there what about it was the lighting what about it was the grade or the the filter or the camera or the sensor or the exposure choices or the film stock it it takes so long to figure all that out and i don't know i i just yes. i feel like I, there are i feel like there's got to be a way to, 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 to sort of learn or teach that that is a bit simpler than just years of experience and grinding it out. I mean, y- you wouldn't exp- – but that's like saying
0: <laughs> – I'm not going to compare this to rocket science, but that's like saying you can learn rocket science in six months. Yes, some very brilliant people can, but it normally takes years of a different foundational starting point in mathematics, right? Physics but, but to get
1: there. You- but here's a big thing we lost when we moved from from film to digital. In in the film days, mm-hmm. a normal photographer did not need an in-depth technical understanding to achieve the perfect perfect color set. Like they could, you know, the the, the best film photographers of the 70s, 90s weren't um weren't colorists, right? They didn't have, they probably did not understand a lot of the stuff. They knew what they liked. They'd look at images and see like, they knew how to manipulate the film stocks that they were using regularly. But that's almost more like understanding how to use your camera. It's not understanding like color science and being able to like, you know, know which sliders to manipulate to get there. It's like now with digital, you have to have this either more in-depth understanding or like find kind of a perfect app that just happens to get you there all the time. And um, no, I don't know. I don't really like that. No. Or you buy Or you? I would buy disagree. A free...
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I would disagree. I mean, like those film photographers, even here's a really great example, right? Because I'm a, I'm a really big fan of uh, Jamie Hawksworth, who uh, is a British photographer who shoots everything on film. He uses the same camera for everything. He does not scan his film negatives. He makes film. He makes prints, physical prints in his dark room. And then from those prints, he scans those. And in that process, he's able to create colors that you cannot create with a scanner. And I think those old, the old film photographers that you're talking about, especially the ones who spent so many hours in the darkroom, they were absolutely colorists. Um, because when you're making prints, that is when you tune the color. That is when you decide if you want your colors to be like, cool or warm or you want your reds to pop or you want the greens to be more uh prominent like that is color work Well,
1: so i'm I'm looking at it in addition to it's amazing but so what but i mean i you know i've worked at non-professional labs the step in between printing like scanning and printing now in like a modern workflow is like the, the scan happens that at that moment you choose some settings about like here i want to increase or decrease the density, I want to move it a little more or less magenta, X, Y, Z, and then you press the button mm-hmm. and it scans it again with those um, compensations Scenics. sort of baked into it, and then you get a final yeah. image that has scanned it with that those biases, um, and that's and the printer just takes that digital file and prints it. Um, so does that mean he's manipulating the scanner himself? Like, does that just mean he has a like the lab equipment at home?
0: No, the reason that he's coming to his results is because he has a step, an old school step that used to be the only step that we completely bypass now with our color labs, which is he does not scan the negative. He takes the negative, he creates a physical print, like a a darkroom print, right? And then he works all of his colors, all of his density, all of his, his tones in in there i don't know if he's dodging and burning i don't think he really retouches his work the colors that appear on that that print get scanned as is because the colors that are on the print are colors that just scanning a negative like you can't you can't come to you can't arrive at those colors no matter how you set your scanner a scanner only really has like a very finite number of controls you can manipulate yeah yeah simple um
1: yeah and, so and, and every to the point where people every... like choose their scanner for the look because they don't get to like dial it in a lot it's like a noritsu mm-hmm. has a look and you just that's that's how everything comes out with a little bit of that bias as far as i understand yes. i mean i was i only really operated the machinery i didn't i wasn't a technician so but that's super that i mean that is actually interesting like i feel like i'm getting old but apparently i'm Missing just a couple of years. Cause like when I was, so how, I mean, I was like 18 when I was doing this and everything was still like the, this, it was a digital scan still at that time, which is like quite a while ago. Um, so yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I missed that whole, like doing an analog color print. I've done analog black and white print. So I don't even know what the process is actually, but maybe I should, yeah. although I definitely won't. If, if a photographer
0: is doing an analog color print of their negatives, I would absolutely call them a colorist. Absolutely. 1000%. Sure. I, then I would too. But do you think that's common? No, it's not common because like access to that is even more rare than access to a developing scan lab. Yeah,
1: that's true. Well, yeah. so what, what else can we do in the digital world? Most, most of us are shooting digital most of the time. Sure. What can we do? What I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna start um, printing through analog means and scanning the print, so what what can i do to make my stuff look better
0: um i mean i don't i don't know what you can do to make it look well you you so ha- here's you, the thing you tell we... me what
1: i should you should you tell me how i should be shooting all the time so i think you have, you have some theories
0: no 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 i do not tell you how that's you not how i meant shooting. it I love your yeah, work yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely would never tell anybody how to do their job that's crazy no, no. Um, no, but we, we did, we actually did start on a a thread of conversation the other day about sort of one of the things that I, I notice a lot with other photographers is I'm amazed by how little they really understand their cameras. I feel like a lot of like the professional in air quotes, the professional thing to do is to like buy a super high end camera that costs a lot of money. That's really smart. And then you forego all of those smart things that the camera can do and you set everything to manual and because you know how to manually expose an image like you have mastered your camera and i think we have really lost that and i i don't know how many other industries or professions there are where we're allowed to be professional without actually fully understanding the main tool that we use
1: yeah i um i i mean as soon as you start talking about that i a thousand percent know what you mean. And I've often thought of that as there's a relationship there between the difference between how a lot of photographers approach their gear and cinematographers. And it's actually a lot of what attracts me to, to filmmaking is like a, a, you know, a working cinematographer that gets jobs on feature films or, or bigger commercials knows a ton of technical stuff. Like you just can't do the work and not be super technical. You've got to know a lot, like a, a lot of like details and boring stuff that uh the director does not have to or want to know. And in the photography world, you can effectively be sort of a direct mostly a director and you look through the lens and you press the button, you know? And that can you can have a full fantastic career doing that and you are a photographer. It's not, you know, that's not I don't mean it in in a to be like an insult or something. It's not. Like, it's just like it's structured differently. And in the filmmaking world, you just it's required to go more in depth. And you can have a career with a more superficial understanding in the in the photo world. Um, but I guess, what, yeah. What where, what do you like getting to with that? Like I, I I recognize that difference for sure. I like to understand my cameras. So do you? But wh- what's your argument for wh- why it's worth doing?
0: Because I I I I I, I, I ultimately. Truly believe. I mean, where this conversation started today was we were talking about simplifying processes, right? And I feel like as photographers, we put so much undue like workload in our in our in our post processes because of the fact that we don't actually let our cameras take care of like a lot of the the things for us. Um, So, like, one of the things that I'm really big about, and I I catch a lot of flack for this, I don't care, um, I like shooting in JPEG, like, whenever I can. Um, Obviously, like, if we're talking, like, big commercial jobs, that's a a completely different beast. Um, Yes, but, like, for, especially, like, almost all of my documentary work, if I'm doing, like, small commissions where, like, the lighting environment is good um where I know I'm not going to have like that many technical issues on site on site specifically having spent time in advance of practicing like with my cameras and learning how to set them in different ways to get them to produce a final image straight out of the camera without me having to go back and like edit it later is an it's a priceless it's a priceless time save um I wouldn't be able to, to sequence and chain together, you know, a hundred images a day working, shooting, you know, 12, 14 hours a day every day for a month. If I then had to go home and edit up like all of these raws. Right. So I say this to people, I say this to colleagues specifically.
1: And you say and it to me all
0: the time. They all kind of look at, all the time and they all just kind of look at me like you're crazy. Or they're like, Oh, it's because you have a Fuji. And I'm like, well, I started yeah, on a Sony, <laughs> and especially your your Canon R5. I don't own any Canon. Your Canon R5 is the best hybrid camera I've ever put my hands on. I am not being paid to say that. Um, I wouldn't pay for an R5, but if someone wanted to give me one, I'd gladly take it. <laughs> it's great. But if I owned yeah. an R5, I, I would find a way. I would find a way for that to get me an image so good out of the camera that when I take it home, I don't have to like spend another several minutes having to tune up, you know, a whole batch of them.
1: Well, so after you, um, um, after you pitched me on this idea, which I think is a very reasonable perspective, totally makes sense. A challenge with it is that the, the built-in picture profiles with Canon are pretty limited in their, in the difference between them. Like what shifts as you move between them really feels like, Uh, pretty uh, unimportant changes in contrast saturation and a few of the colors will move around a little bit but like they're all aiming towards that you know what i was talking about previously is like a technical digital accurate look any of the built-in profiles they're not going to give you anything remotely like a filmic look nothing like what the fuji uh styles will do. I don't remember what Fuji calls them. So I I was, you, you, you told me this the other day. I'm like, that makes sense. And I dug into the picture style, picture style editor that Canon provides, which is desktop software where you can modify and create your own picture styles so that I could do this. I could save the JPEGs. And, um, you know, I didn't spend that long with it. I spent maybe two hours and I was, I was disappointed to find that the, the biggest limitation, because at first I was excited. I was like, "Cool, there's curves in here. That's super powerful, and it's got basically hue saturation sliders. So you can go really far with that." That's what is often missing from a lot of the the like iPhone apps is that they don't do anything with like hue assignment, right? Like greens are the default green. All they do all they do is curves, it, it, like contrast saturation stuff. But being able to manipulate like how hues are mapped is is important. What's missing is RGB curves and something to me that is part of what I associate with that, that like filmic look I'd be after if I was to not process it afterwards. Like I do like to have a little bit of cooler shadows. I do like some separation in my brighter and darker parts of the image. And that's not always necessary, but without it, I don't, I wouldn't be getting towards what I would want to use all the time. I wouldn't be ending up with a final JPEG that is like really the look that I'd be after. So, you know, like in LUTs that I've created, like when I'm applying LUTs that I've made to, to video work, that's all that's, there's always some amount of that in there. And it's not like the full on teal and orange look. It's just like, they're a little bit cooler and they're a little bit warmer and, you know. Um, so inability to do that kind of made me stop looking, but yeah, I w- if there's any listener out there that knows how I can get further with that, I'd love to do it. So I'll
0: say two things to that. The first is you've certainly spent tens of thousands of hours working on like uh, a way to perfect your uh, your your raw look, like your whatever presets like you've made for yourself, your customized looks for for your raw images, right? Mm-hmm you've probably spent maybe not tens of thousands of hours, maybe hundreds or thousands of hours, like perfecting your uh, really great Stallman looks, you know, for your video, right? Yeah. You can't sit here and say that you spent two hours <laughs> the di- tweaking the difference. The image is settings had,
1: on your camera and that yeah, you, yeah. I had sliders to tweak. I just, I got to find the knobs to turn. Yeah. I, that's the, that's what's missing. Yes,
0: yes, yes. And I'm saying like, with everything else that we perfect, like in our jobs, right? Mm-hmm. why why is for photographers, I'm not even putting this on you, Tyler, because this is a lot of people. yeah. yeah. Like why do we Get fidget it. with our cameras for like ten minutes and we're like, "Oh, it doesn't do the thing that I want." and then you just disregard it. Mm-hmm. it's like a five thousand dollars camera, right? Well, so it is best in its class for a reason. I'd also love to like, hear some examples of like, will,
1: what, what are you doing with your Fujis? Like, what are you modifying that is getting it closer to what you like than it is out of the box? Say that again with your Fuji cameras, what are some things that you change Mm -hmm. in the settings that make the images more to your taste than the default settings?
0: Oh, we're about to get into a trade secret. <laughs>
1: oh yes, that's what I mean. That's what.
0: The, so this we're about to get into a trade secret. This is yeah. This is actually not a. This is actually I would say this is probably not like a, a Fuji specific thing. Um. Well, so first of all, uh, Fuji doesn't have on the camera and its profiles. It we don't have. Uh, I think on the later Fujis, there's like a a shadow highlight curve, but there's not like an RGB curve. What there is is like this, uh, it's like an RGB matrix. It's like a little map mm-hmm. where you can change the mid-tone color of the image, but you can't manipulate like the shading. I can't say that I want the image to be warm, but I want the shadows to be cool. Um, But to answer your question for real, what I do is I've learned... And this is this goes back to when I was shooting on Sony. I shoot my digitals exactly the same way that I would shoot my film. So in any in any condition that will allow me to. So one of the things that like I'll see people do they're after like a film look, let's say, while they shoot at 3200 ISO and uh, one one four thousandth of a second shutter because they want it to be really fast. Okay, great you're not going to find like a film camera that's going to give you those settings. So if you're off, if you're after like a filmic look, we're not talking about color at the moment, but if you're after a filmic look, like why, like why are you using settings on your digital camera that a film, a film camera can't replicate film cameras historically are a bit slower, right? Um, In the way that they operate, they have a very finite limit on the shutter speed. Usually they top out at a thousand. If you have a Hasselblad or something, maybe it's 500, um, And if you're using a color film, you know, your ISO during the day, probably 800 is your max. Most people shooting outside, like if they are reading like all of the how-to blogs and stuff are gonna overexpose that anyway. Mm-hmm. So you have a portrait 400, but you're shooting it at ISO 100, right? So you're overexposing it by two stops. So you're trying to replicate this look where you shoot something that's ISO 400 overexposed by two stops. Um, But then you blow out like the ISO and the shutter speed and shoot at like a F2 during the day, which is like, you know, that's something that you would just never do on a film camera. So the picture, like the image, the perspective that we're creating on the digital camera is nothing like that image that would be created on a, film camera because you would inherently use a completely different set of rules. Right. So that's what I do. When I'm shooting digital, I just stick to the rules. And it makes it makes working a lot easier because I have less less decisions that I have to make, less options that I have to to worry about. And I get a I get an image at the end of the day that has the correct level of density and dynamic range that allows me to have it absolutely everything that I want in that image already as a JPEG or
1: a raw. I mean, I still feel like I'm missing, I'm missing some secret ingredient here because if I do what you're describing right now with my Canon R five, I still Mm -hmm. know there's a pretty specific range of ways that that's going to come out and that I'm always going to want to add a filter on top of that (laughs) so far. Maybe I I have six more hours of doing to do.
0: I'm not, so maybe we missed something. I, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that you should not, or a person should not add a filter or even do any post editing. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is what my process was for myself. Let's say I was going to use your uh, your preset, like your commercial uh, photo, like a commercial photo preset of yours, right? Can I get to a place where every image that I create that preset will apply. It will look great. I don't have to do anything else. Can I just set it and forget it, as we like to say in, in photography sometimes? Um, but too often what happens, right, is you bring in a batch of images, you put your preset on it, and then with every image, you then have to start fine-tuning things. You have to start tweaking the shadows. You start tweaking the the skin tone on one image where the other one, you're like, oh, that's good enough. And I would say that if we shot it consistently across the board, that one application should work the same for every right. single image. Yeah. So no, like, like that part of the process is the thing that I'm trying to like, I get that always like master for myself. Yeah. You know what I actually yeah. forgot
1: in this conversation is that I have a Fuji I could be shooting with. Well, my, cause Anya has a Fuji that she doesn't use that often. I should be pulling uh what is it? An F uh, or X 100 F I think. So I should, I should pull that great camera. I pull that out of the drawer and actually figure some of this stuff out for myself. Um, well, I'm de- I mean, I'm gonna dive deeper. you know this what what this made me wish for as well, which this is uh maybe the opposite of what it's literally the opposite of what you're describing. I think it'd be great to be able to shoot uh, into ten bit h or h e v c or however you want to describe it images which is happening more and more like the new 1D series from Canon does that. I think, I think a Fuji or two has offered this, like it's coming to some cameras so that you're at, you're instead of getting in cause the JPEGs are always eight bit, right? Like you're shooting into something that's eight bit, not 10 bit. And, um, yes, 10 bit has, if you want to manipulate it, has some advantages. Anyway, I'd love to shoot in a, like a higher bit rate, still compressed file that is log. So effectively what I'm doing with video Able to preview a LUT while I'm shooting, but I get a final log thing at the end in my um Lightroom or, or uh capture one applies a LUT just like it, the exact same as a uh, video workflow. So like you never really have to look at the log. It's just there. But the file is compressed, it's not big, mm-hmm. you have some latitude, some room to manipulate it later, and you could use the exact same log profiles as you're shooting video with. So you know, I could have my on my r5 or the on the r5c would be a great example you're shooting a c log 3 and you switch back and forth between photo and video mode and you're getting the same image like except maybe there's somehow a little more latitude in the stills because they're still i don't know stills seem to have more somehow um and then you can just treat it with the exact same process afterwards and post match the colors exactly uh or near nearly exactly and um i don't know why isn't that a thing <laughs> I know why it's not a thing because c- well, it's complicated, and most photographers don't want to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I th- so I think it's the the part about shooting in log that probably throws me a little bit because I'm thinking, like, especially shooting on on Fuji. So you can put like you can put like a film simulation on the picture, and you can also take that same film simulation, which is essentially a picture profile, and apply that to the video you're shooting. I don't remember. I think you can also apply it to f-log. Oh, the thing is, though, if you export it out, like when you export it out to, uh, uh like DaVinci, that that film simulation doesn't exist as a LUT. There's the f-log LUT for sure, and I, but I, as far as I know, there's not, uh, there aren't any like LUTs in the wild that are those film emulations. So I think that's kind of what you're talking about, something like that right where but you shoot and I, log yeah. but you also have your
1: yeah i mean well so that basically uh, literally just working the way that a good cinema camera does everything being captured is all log or even the way that it works if you're just using an external monitor but you've created a monitoring lut and then you use that same lut in post and now you're just getting the thing that you captured but there's a little flexibility in between you still got log so you still have room to move around, and if anybody doesn't understand why. I like, why would you ever want log? I, 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 the way I, w- there's this is a broken analogy, but helpful, is that, you're it's effectively similar to raw in terms of the flexibility because it's so desaturated and it is so flat. You can push that gamma curve and bring that saturation back in a way that you have a lot more room for making decisions later but you still have a compressed file because shooting a raw video is so big typically um having something much more like you're saying you can shoot jpeg jpegs 8-bit so that's why it'd be nice to have something with a few more bit depths to it um but you'd have all this flexibility on relatively small files so but it's also more complicated because now you've got a few extra steps
0: (laughs) Yeah,
1: it, it's it's all it's a
0: few extra steps, and but I'm also thinking like back to like what we were saying earlier, like you know inherently when you when you shoot on video when you're using a, a cinema like your C70, you know something in daytime you might be shooting that at like, uh, knowing you you're probably shooting it wide open at f2 with like eight yeah. ND stop or something yeah, like that. Of course, uh, <laughs> you know uh, but then. Knowing that if you were going to have that LUT also apply to your photo so that the photo looks the same, like you have to then know how to expose that so that it then also matches in the picture. Because otherwise, even if the the look is the same, like the image is not going to be the same. It's going to still look a little bit different. I mean,
1: I, there's still some technical details to be worked out. I just think it's a brilliant <laughs> idea that I want somebody to hire me to. No, you're onto something. <laughs> This is my this is my new I totally thing. Agree. I'm yeah. just going to throw away really brilliant ideas that all of the film and photo industry should be picking up and then cashing the royalty checks when they inevitably uh, <laughs> adopt all these features. But l- let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question about this. So,
0: but when you do when you do your video color, do you does most of your commercial video have two LUTs? Yeah, it does. Right. So if you just, if you just, let's say you just put your, your Stallman LUT on the, on the end of, of a chain, that would be the LUT that would go on your Canon photo. It's not going to look the same if you don't transform it first, right?
1: Yes. But what I'm able to do in the transform LUT, I can choose where my highlight roll off is going to be, where my, uh like where the knee is, where the, shadow if the shadows get lifted because like i'll often include that in well maybe not in the transform the, the transform will try to be pretty much accurate but um all there'll be some some things will be getting pushed around and that if if i just shoot to jpeg with like whatever canon is providing of like, the, like i was saying that limited option of how many different profiles canon provides me i can't make very many choices about like are my highlights down a bit are my shadows up a little bit i don't I have very little room to to make choices there so i kind of would have to like create a completely new lut that's recalibrated to what canon is providing rather than calibrating it to uh, c log 3 and it's there's really there's no disadvantage to like i'm saying i do it as a two-step process there's no disadvantage to doing it as one like you can create the lut so that the transform is baked in and it's going to look it's going to in most circumstances is going to work just as well. Like I can't think of any exceptions actually. It doesn't matter if it's one or two step process, but uh, I do, I like the flexibility of having two layers so that I can make some decisions in between, or I could use a different final, final lot things like that. Um, yeah. Also, I'm just like, I'm like, I'm like listening to myself. I'm like, how in the weeds are we? How many people understand what the, f- <laughs> 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 but I, you know, this is, this is the stuff I'm looking at all the time. So I, uh, this is the stuff that, it's this is why it's been it's taken so long for consumer video to look half decent. Why anybody other than high-end pros have not been able to have like beautiful video until like the last couple of years. Just watch YouTube up until recently. So few people understood how to make it look great. And it should not be that hard. And the same thing happened with photography. After we abandoned film, most digital photos look terrible for like 15 years. It took so long for us to figure for out like, time, oh, yeah. here's what we need to do. Um, I'm pretty confident that in another maybe five years, it will get, oh, there's no reason it's not, it doesn't just become trivial. They're like everything, everybody produces has the option of looking, you know, that like digital look that I said, or it can come right out of camera feeling filmic, you know, in, in some kind of like preset way, like obviously not dialed in to, to like the person needs some taste to pursue that. But in the same way that you could pick up a point and shoot film camera and anybody could take photos that have some interesting character to it that I feel is missing in a point and shoot digital camera, for example. So I, I, I do think that's right around the corner. It should not be challenging. There's no reason people need to be color scientists to be able to create that kind of image. Um, but right now there is still a, there's still a gap. Like I don't think everybody can just step into it easily. Like if you just use an Instagram filter or use VSCO or um, film convert or, you know, many of the presets out there, you don't instantly get results that are feel as good as a film point and shoot camera did.
0: No. And, and that goes back to the original thing thing I'm saying. It's because usually when people are dialing in their images, like, I don't mean this pejoratively at all, but like the images themselves are just all over the place. Like from one image to the next, you know, the way that the image is simply shot could be completely different from one image to the next. And But the marketing around all of this stuff is that it it promises us results that we can just apply this cheese to everything and it's going to taste the same. Right. Um, And that's why I think that's where maybe we disagree a little bit I do think it's important that like photographers especially if they are either professional or they aspire to be professional they take more time to learn the tools because like I hear what you're I saying don't and I think a lot, that. That people, yeah, a lot of people yeah a lot a lot of people they put all of their all of their concern into the software and to me like the software is what happens after the image has been created Like the most important part of this process is the camera itself and what the camera is capturing and how it's capturing it. Um, And when you get to a place where you are creating images in a consistent way, the best thing about that is when you start sitting down to like trial and error, like an editing process or a coloring process, uh, you're messing around with LUTs and things like that. If your footage is consistent, and we, we hear this all the time in tutorials, right? If, you're, if, you're, if your material is consistent, you should expect re- consistent results for better or for worse. And if they are consistent and they're consistent for the worst, then you know it's easier to identify why things are going wrong versus you have 10 images shot 10 completely different ways and you don't know
1: if it's an exposure yep. issue or a white balance issue or – yeah. I get that. Well, here, before we completely run out of time, this has been a long episode, which is great. I also want to just hit on computers ah. for a sec because um, I feel like the, the world it. has changed since we talked last in terms of, I mean, the M1 revolution. Uh, what What are you working on now? And has it made a big difference in your life?
0: Uh, <laughs> So right now I have the M1 Max, uh, two terabyte hard drive, whatever the max RAM yeah. is. Um, is it making a big difference in my life? It made a big difference, uh, in DaVinci. Yes. Um, I think that Your JPEGs are loading honestly, faster when you, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're loading faster, but like getting, being able to have capture one on an iPad to me is maybe, the next frontier of like, I think this will completely change the way that I work. Did you,
1: did you use it um, yet? Have you used we're out of some of the, the updates? I mean, capture one is always like the thing I just haven't quite got around to talking about. And I need to go way more in depth on sometimes. And I just haven't, but w- have you used some of the new tools? No, I, I never use the new tools because I just do everything the same way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and anybody that hasn't seen what they it, are, there's a few different things. Capture one's got an, an app now, which is like pretty full featured, um, especially in terms of it's using the same processing engine. So you can use the same styles from your computer. Um, The way that it passes images back and forth, I think is really interesting, totally different from Adobe. It's not about, they don't want you to live on the cloud because they understand professionals need to store things locally. So it's much more about accessible copies on the cloud that you can make the manipulations to on your iPad. Then you'd maybe move back to your computer I think they've been really thoughtful and really smart about how they're doing that. And then on the other side, what I've talked about in Instagram Stories a bit more is the um, the ability to share monitoring links with clients remotely. And that's what I've just like has been amazing. Nice. I've only done it on two shoots now, but like it just it just looks at everything coming in, creates a web link. Open you can open it on anything, on any phone, any. There's no app. You don't install anything. You just share this link with anybody. And they will live see what you're shooting coming in. They can rate the images. They can assign colors. They can reject them. And it works. That's, that's <laughs> like the best part. It's like it just it actually works. Um, I don't know. It, yeah. it's, it's pretty great. That's nice.
0: Yeah. I don't really tether any work, so I, I I flat out refuse whenever I can. This has been it. making um, me do it more. Yeah, that's yeah, nice. I've been
1: tethered. I used to, like, really never. I mean, we spent years never tethering and i only bought my first like good tether cable last year because <laughs> it it started happening more um and yeah it's just it's it's gotten good uh also the the everything sped up a bit too with the um you know capture ones reoptimized for m1 um so you are you're not waiting nearly as long this was the big issue before is i like i shoot burst mode quite a bit yes. i overshoot And I, you know, bang, 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 bang. And then all of a sudden I'm staring at the screen, waiting to see the last image. Like that's not a good experience. Uh, It's gotten way faster now, so. Are you still with your Mac studio? Uh, I'm with it. It's in the other room. (laughs) But uh, I'm I'm still mostly on the the laptop though. The the studio is, a, a desktop is hard to be my primary machine because I'm not always in one place. I'm not like, I edit as much at home as I do at the studio. So um, I can't commit. And now apparently we're traveling gotcha. again. So, um, But the, what was I going to add? Oh, um, yeah, in terms of capture tethering. Right, another thing I want to try, which I, I, I didn't do it yet, but they've also added some like really nice optimizations for the R5 Wi-Fi tethering, that if you get the Wi-Fi grip, for the R5, which is just like you know a big chunky uh transmitter. Apparently it's like solid. Like you can just not plug into anything and it's gonna be live uploading to your computer, or no, probably wouldn't do it to an iPad. But yeah, to your computer at least, with no tether cable, it's actually fast. It's like becoming a reality, which until now it was a gimmick that didn't work that great. And I don't know, it's it's getting cool. Tethering's getting a lot more, a lot less painful than it used to be. It's like a whole new frontier out here. Yeah.
0: Like, I mean, everything is, especially since we've gotten the M1, M1 Max, M1 Ultra. Yeah, all Ultra. Ultra. Yep. Yeah. They're fantastic. I mean, even the base level, like M1 iMac, is really solid. Yeah. Like, for what little is in it, and especially, especially if like the main, your main outlet is just photo. If you're mainly just doing photos, I mean, most people don't need more than the, the, the base in one. It's so totally, yeah, it's on its own. It's yeah. so good. Any, yeah. any
1: normal photography workflow is completely handled by any of the M1s. I mean like that, uh, the M1 iMac, I kind of just want to use that all the time. I want that to be my, my machine. They're so affordable and the screen's awesome. It's not enormous, but it's really nice. And it's so reasonably priced and like, yeah, you can just, it, I don't know. We have so many great choices for photography right now. All of a sudden, like I used to do these sort of like a photographer's review of computers. I'm like, I don't know what to say anymore. Cause they're all so good. I'm not, I'm not finding problems with them that, uh, you know, there used to be more limitations and they're really starting to disappear on the photo side. So can I ask you one last question on this? Of course. Uh, was you saying you
0: said you're not using the uh, the studio as much? Um, Can you borrow it? Having had it as long as you've had it, yeah. At this point, is it something that like you would recommend to creatives, y- or yeah, would you want them to wait out mm. a new iMac if one is forthcoming?
1: That's actually a little tough. I really, given the total cost of your studio, yeah, yeah, yeah. that
0: plus the well, uh, let's say it, it comes with the the, the monitor the, and, and whatnot. The
1: ultra one is the ultra is so for like a type of pro that is not budget conscious. Don't think about the ultra if you are worried about money. Like it is for people, it is for studios that are spending someone else's money, or if you just like, you know, every job you get, like every second that counts enough that you're just going to pay for it. Of course you already know that those, then, you know, you need it. But if you are, you know, concerned about your budget, which I am, like I I definitely don't buy the most expensive thing. Um, you don't need it. You definitely don't. So, um, just in terms of the ultra, that's, that's my advice on that in terms of the studio. It's mostly a form factor question. Like, uh, you know, there's some things that are really nice about it. When I have been using it, like ports on the front sounds small, it feels big sometimes. It's just in. It's in, it's right in front of you, and you're not reaching around to the back. Having um it's really nice to have uh USB A ports. I still have so many USB A cables kicking around. Um, still gets used all the time. And uh, yeah, oh yeah, another thing about the ultra. One last thing about it though is uh, uh, maybe the the advantage that the most people can benefit from is having every port be thunderbolt i think i mentioned this on the episode with jonathan um and not worrying about like wait did i plug into the slower usb 3 port everything's fast so that's that's awesome about the the ultra but um if you're just getting the max i mean it's it's just it it is the best desktop situation it's it's going to be better than even if a 27-inch imac comes out unless that imac has a better display, which I don't expect it will. Um, it's 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 better. It's not as clean, you know. If you really want your desk to look empty, then yeah, iMac. I mean, I I've, I've always loved 27-inch iMacs. I've had so many of them in all my design jobs. Like that's what the whole office was full of. Everybody had a 27-inch iMac. So it's still hard for me to imagine that they're not coming back. But being able to upgrade your computer and your monitor separately is is actually a better setup. It is. More scalable, um, you will upgrade a little bit more often, um, and having just all the ports available all the time, no more, no adapters is is better. So, I I don't know. Does that, does that sum it up properly? It
0: does. Uh, it does. And with all that said, I'm still waiting for a new 27 inch. I
1: just hope you're not waiting too long, man.
0: I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm happy to wait. I mean, this laptop is amazing, right? But I, I think, like, you're talking about, like, you you travel a lot for work. I also travel a lot for work. And and if I can just get to a place where I have a really good iMac M1, like, max level iMac, and um, I can do all of the work on Capture One on my iPad that I can do on my laptop, I would just never use my laptop because like all of my heavy duty video stuff I would just do back home at the lab anyway so what else is left like my iPad can already can already do like video pretty well with like lumafusion and whatnot do you do, so, you do it do you actually add a video on it when I like so a few seasons ago um I would like cut these like short like 10 to 15 second uh clips at fashion week and for those I would do lumafusion um because that was nice because on my when I was shooting with my Fuji, I would put the film simulation on the video. So instead of shooting in log, I would just shoot straight the uh, HD level. It was only going to live on on um, Instagram anyway. Um, but the color is just baked right it in. It looks nice. Um, so all I had to do in
1: LumaFusion was cut, and it cut like butter yeah. so fast. Yeah, um, yeah nice. I want to try out the new – there's some big updates to iMovie, which has not been updated in forever. Still no vertical video, so I'm not going to start using it all the time but it's actually pretty cool, especially for beginners. So now all of a sudden there aren't a guarantee. There's no beginners that survived that conversation we just had. So this probably doesn't apply to anybody that's still listening, but if you're a beginner um, there's some really awesome templates actually that I think, or let's say if you're a beginner in your life, especially for like kids where it kind of guides you through here's how to create a, the one example is like a tech review. And it's like, start off by like introducing the product here. You might want to add a product shot here. You might want to add, um, a shot of you using the product. Here's another place where you could summarize the whole thing. And it just walks you through with little illustrated thumbnails. Like here's everything that could maybe make up a tech review. You can delete some if you want, you can add more of them. And for somebody that hasn't doesn't Doesn't have that template in their mind of like, what is the structure of video creation? I think it's gotten really cool for that, where like it can just really hold your hand and make you feel a lot more confident and comfortable picking up an iPhone and making a complete video with not a lot of work. So I, I think that's going to be pretty cool for somebody out there, for a lot of people. They just need vertical integration. Oh, I don't, I don't understand. Like it's so weird because they've had the mobile app that, people are very aware of more. They have better brand recognition still than, you know, I use video leap. Um, and they just have not been able to add vertical. I don't know why it's still not happened, but I, I've, I've heard it will
0: <laughs> just, I mean, I I've heard that you
1: have Apple's ear now, so I mean, you can always well, just I, drop them. I the just end. hope somebody's listening and we get vertical as soon as possible. But until then, Perhaps. thanks. Thanks again for coming on some brush. um, links are in the show notes always a so pleasure. everybody can find your amazing work which is all over the internet and um, again, talk to you again soon